So, in our last session, uh, I spoke about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because what we've been doing over the past few weeks when I've been speaking is I've been trying to talk about systematic theology. And that's a big expression for just putting together systematically what the Bible says about who God is and what God has done and what God will do. And so we started by thinking about the teaching of, or the doctrine of scripture. How can we know God? And we saw that the way that we know God is because by, is the, is the word of God. God speaks to us through the Bible and that's how we can know about God. Then we thought about who God is. God is the creator of all things. We thought about God as Trinity. And then we thought about who Jesus Christ is. And we saw that he is both God and man. And that, in our last session, was where we expanded on our understanding of who Jesus Christ is. And we saw that he's not a mixture of God and man, but he is both fully God and fully man. And that means that he has, he is everything that God is. So just as God is all-knowing, as God is all-powerful, as God is omnipresent, he's all places at all times so Jesus Christ is all of those things and yet because he's fully human he possesses all of the attributes of human beings as human beings grow as they learn as they suffer as they are even capable of dying so also Jesus Christ was capable of all of those things because he is fully God and fully human at the same time and yet we also emphasise that he's not two separate beings. It's not that there's two separate beings, God and man, joined in Jesus Christ, but that he's one person, the Son of God, who added humanity to himself so that as the Son of God, he would be able to experience all that we experience as human beings. So he doesn't take away anything from himself, but he adds humanity to himself. But having thought about all that Jesus Christ is, the next question that we want to answer this evening is, what did Jesus Christ do? And of course, at one level, you can answer that very simply by just thinking about all that Jesus Christ did. Yes, he was born in Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth. He had a preaching and healing ministry. Wherefore, when he was about 30 years old, for about three years, he went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed of the devil. And then eventually he was betrayed by one of his own followers. So he was crucified. He died. He was buried. He rose again from the dead on the third day. Forty days later, he ascended into heaven and is now sitting at the right hand of the Father. And that would be a rough summary of what Jesus Christ did. But when I ask the question, what did Jesus do? I'm not just thinking about the historical events that he did during his life here upon earth. I'm thinking about the significance of those things. So when we say that Jesus Christ went to the cross, that he died on the cross, what's the significance of that? What did that actually accomplish? What did it do? And we need to ask that question about the whole of Christ's life. What does it mean? And to answer that question, then we need to, we need to ask the Lord Jesus himself. And the way that we do that is we go to the Bible and we look at the Bible and, and look for where Jesus himself explains to us what his life was all about. 
We ask him to explain to us what he was here for, what his mission was. And in the historical records of Jesus Christ, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, we see Jesus Christ answering that question for us, explaining why he came into the world. And I think it's summed up very nicely in these words in John chapter 6. And they're on the slide here behind me and I'm going to read these. And these are the words of the Lord Jesus where he explains to us what his life was about. He says, all those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. Jesus here is talking to a crowd of people who had followed him after he had fed the 5,000. And when he fed the 5,000, you remember, he multiplied the loaves uh, so that lots of people were able to eat bread. And then they started following Jesus because they thought, well, he's able to supply free food for us. And so they start following Jesus and Jesus rebukes them and says, no, if you're following me for the free bread, then you're following me for the wrong reason. Because after you've had some bread in a few hours, you'll be hungry again. And it keeps on going on like that. And so then that leads him to explain his true purpose. It's not to just give out bread to people, but he is going to be the bread of life itself. He is the bread that God has sent to give life to the world. And if people have Jesus Christ, then they have life which never ends. And so he explains that in his mission, his reason for being sent into the world, he is going to give life to the people that have been entrusted to him by the Father. So the Father has entrusted people to Jesus, and Jesus has taken on the responsibility of giving life to those people and raising them up at the last day. And so he sums up his purpose by saying, I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And that then means that if we're going to understand what the Lord Jesus was about, we need to understand that he was here to do exactly what God wanted him to do, what God the Father wanted him to do. And that then means that the life of Jesus has to be understood not as some kind of independent scheme where Jesus decides he's going to do his own thing to try and help people independently of God, but that what the Lord Jesus was doing was part of the one unified plan of the triune God to rescue fallen human beings. People who were, who were condemned in sin and death, God planned to rescue those people and the Lord Jesus came into the world to put that plan into action and to rescue those people. And so as the Father gives this people to the Son, the Son ensures that none of them are lost, but that every one of them is kept to the end when he raises them up at the last day. <clears throat> Another thing worth noting here is that there is only one undivided will of God. There's not separate wills in God where you've got Jesus willing one thing, the Spirit willing one thing, and God the Father willing another thing, but there's one undivided will in God himself to save fallen human beings. And the Lord Jesus, he shares as God 
in that divine will. And that's important to keep in mind because as we think later about the work of Christ, sometimes people get a mistaken idea in their heads where they think that God the Father is angry with us and then what God the Son has to do is step in and, and make God the Father not be angry with us so that uh, there's this kind of inner tension within God that needs to be resolved. That's not how it works because God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit share in this one undivided will to rescue fallen human beings. And so when we think about what is the purpose of Jesus Christ, why did he come into the world? We see it here, he came into the world to accomplish the will of the Father and give life to the people that had been given to him by the Father. And that's something that's echoed in other passages of scripture as well. It's not just here. We see Paul writing to his friend Timothy, as we saw recently in 1 Timothy chapter one, and he says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. And again, that, that echoes a lot of the same ideas that the Lord Jesus himself said. It's talking about this one who came into the world on a mission. And it tells us that he came for the very specific purpose of saving, of rescuing sinners. And this then is the fundamental reason why Jesus Christ came into the world. And it has to be seen in contrast to all kinds of other ideas that we might have about why Jesus came. Because Jesus did many things when he, when he came into the world. He, he taught, he healed. And yet if we think about Jesus' mission fundamentally as someone who teaches us good things, then we mistake him. If we think about his mission purely as you know, healing people that were sick, then that would be to misunderstand his mission because his fundamental mission is to save, to rescue sinners. Because our problem is that we are under the condemnation of sin. We cannot do anything for ourselves. We're guilty, we're condemned, that's the end of the matter. And so what Jesus Christ does what his fundamental mission and purpose in coming into the world was, is to save, to rescue sinners, to do for them what they could never do for themselves. And he does this by taking that sentence of death, the condemnation that was hanging over us, and he takes it away. And so then the question becomes, how does he do that? How did Jesus Christ take away the sentence of death and condemnation that hung over us. And the answer to that is found at the pinnacle of his work, his death on the cross. And the reason why I say it's the pinnacle of his work is because it's, it's important not to divide up the work of Christ and, and chop it up into little bits, as if to say that the only reason why Jesus Christ came into the world was to die on the cross. That's his, his fundamental purpose, why he came to save us. But his entire life was one of obedience to the Father that cannot be chopped up. And the entire life of obedience comes to its pinnacle, its fulfillment at the cross, where he lays down his life so that we get rescued, we get saved. And so we're going to think about the cross of Jesus Christ and think, what happened there? What took place there to rescue us? 
And there's various things that I could say about what Jesus Christ did there. And I'm not going to talk so much about the historical events that took place there, as important as they are. I'm going to talk about the significance, the meaning of what took place there. And there are various things that I could add to what I've got on the slide there. I'm not going to talk about everything that I could talk about. I'm going to talk about these four because I think these four are important. Firstly, Jesus propitiated the wrath of God against us. In other words, God was angry with us and Jesus took that anger away so that God is no longer angry with us. Secondly, Jesus Christ expiates our guilt. That just means he takes it away so that we're no longer guilty before God. Thirdly, he redeems us from our slavery, whereas once we were slaves of sin and could not escape from the condemnation that we were under, Jesus Christ sets us free to belong to God. And fourthly, he reconciles us to God, whereas once we were enemies of God, estranged from God, Now we are God's friends. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And as I go through each of these, my aim is to give us a better appreciation of what the Lord Jesus did on the cross. I'm not going to say everything that I could say, but I'm just going to go through briefly, explain them, point to where scripture makes clear for us what Jesus Christ did, so that we hopefully come away with a better appreciation of what Christ did And a greater love for him because of what he did for us at the cross. Firstly then, is the subject of propitiation. And that's not a word that's used very often these days. And for that very reason, a lot of contemporary translations like my NIV, they translate it as sacrifice of atonement. Or sacrifice in some translations. And that's not wrong, but it doesn't convey all that the word actually means. And this is why formal translations like the ESV here are are helpful, because the idea of propitiation has this idea in it that God is angry with us because of what we've done wrong. So we need a sacrifice to propitiate God's anger, to take God's wrath, God's anger away so that he's no longer angry with us. And you get that idea a lot in Greek and Roman literature. Where someone, uh, whether in a myth or in reality, will have done something to anger the gods and then they've got to offer a sacrifice to stop the gods being angry with them. Now there are a lot of differences between the Greek-Roman conception of propitiating the gods and what the Bible means by God's wrath being propitiated. And we're going to come back to that, so we're going to park that for a moment. And we're going to think about this text before us that that then speaks about propitiation and think about, well, what does that mean? How do we learn about what God does to propitiate his wrath? (coughs) And so we see here in Romans chapter 3, Paul writing to the Romans. And he says in verse 22, There is no distinction between Jews and Gentiles, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so what Paul does here, is he begins by explaining to us that there's no difference between Jews and non-Jews, or Gentiles. 
Because Jews sometimes thought to themselves that because they had a special covenant relationship with God, that therefore they were okay, they'd got nothing to worry about. But Paul, in this letter to the Romans, highlights that actually Jews and Gentiles face the same fundamental problem, that they have sinned against God. They have done wrong and gone away from God. And that then means that we all fall short of the glory that God deserves. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so nobody can claim that they're any better off because of any, any special feature about themselves because every one of us has this same fundamental problem of, of our rebellion, of our sinfulness against God. And because then we're sinful, we're guilty. And we stand before God like condemned criminals. And so what God has to do then to deal with the problem of our guilt is to put us right to justify us. This word justify means to declare us right in his sight. And this passage here says that he gives us this justification by his grace as a gift. So people that don't deserve it, that can't do anything to get it, he comes and he says, here's a gift to you that I'm giving freely to you. And it's, I'm saying that you are not guilty you are righteous. You're in the right. But the question is, how does God do that? Because it strikes us at first glance that that is very unrighteous for God to do that. How could God take a guilty person and say, hey, you're, you're innocent. You've done nothing wrong. So what does God do to take a guilty person and say to them, you are not guilty. You are just before me. And so what God has to do, simply put, is to, to put forward Jesus Christ as our substitute. The one who bears the condemnation of our guilt so that when we belong to Jesus Christ, God sees that Jesus has borne our condemnation for us. And so belonging to Jesus Christ then means that God can say to us, you're no longer guilty. Your judgment has been taken away. Your condemnation has been taken. And this thing gets fleshed out in these verses where, where Paul explains that God redeemed us and set us free from our condemnation by putting forward Christ as a propitiation by his blood. That is, when Christ shed his blood as a sacrifice at the cross at Calvary in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, God accepted Jesus Christ's death on the cross as a propitiation for us so that he's no longer angry with us but that his anger is taken away and then he gives us this gift by faith of saying that we are right. He declares us righteous. And so the passage goes on then to show that, that Christ's propitiation and satisfaction of God's wrath means that then God is not unjust to declare us righteous. righteous. He's not unjust to look, overlook our sins because Jesus Christ has died in our place. And so it says that he passed over the former sins. It, and this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over the former sins. That is, the sins committed before the death of Jesus, God was right in not punishing people for those, but 
but forgiving them because Jesus Christ was the one who would come to take away God's wrath. And he's seen as righteous in the present time, now, when he is just and the one who justifies, declares righteous, those who have faith in Jesus. In short, this passage is a very dense and a very clear summary of how Jesus became our substitute to bear God's wrath on the cross against us so that we're no longer under God's wrath. God is no longer angry with those who have faith in Jesus. They're no longer condemned. But it's important then to make some clarifications about what I'm saying here. Because there's a lot of misunderstanding creeps in when we talk about God's anger and God's anger being taken away. And some people then say that this whole idea of God being angry at sinners and God's anger needing to be satisfied, that's a pagan idea and it's not an idea that you find in the Bible. And they say, well, if you look at the Bible, you see God's a God of love. He loves everybody. He's not angry with anybody. His anger doesn't need to be satisfied. But this misunderstands what it means for God to be angry. His anger isn't the opposite of his love, as if he can't be both. It's precisely because he loves human beings. He's so angry that they do things that destroy the image of God. They do things to destroy other human beings, to destroy the world that God has made. And this makes God angry and God would not be good. God would not be righteous if he wasn't angry at the things that destroy the world. And so he's angry because he finds sin so offensive. But the key difference then between the pagan ideas about about people propitiating the wrath of an angry God and the God of the Bible, is that in the pagan ideas, the gods are angry and you've got to find a way to stop them from being angry. But in the Bible, what we discover is that God is so full of love for us that he himself provides the propitiation for our sins. He doesn't expect us to come up with a way. He loves us and he himself becomes the propitiation for our sins. And that's why we read in those previous verses that Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, God himself is the one who provides the propitiation. Another objection is um, that, well, how could God be angry at his son whom he loves? Some people point to the fact that, well, the father, he declares to the son, this is my son whom I love with you. I am well pleased. So what happens at the cross when Jesus takes away the wrath, the anger of God? And here I think we've got to be very careful because at the cross, God the father was not angry with his son. In fact, it would be true to say that he was never more pleased with his son than at the cross. But at the cross, Jesus Christ experiences the consequences of God's wrath, the condemnation that comes from God's anger, so that in his forsakenness and his abandonment on the cross, he experiences the condemnation that we deserve so that we go free. Another objection is that 
the Son of God dying at the hands of the Father is divine child abuse. And this is an objection that's been raised against this idea that the Son of God would die in our place. But this again is a misunderstanding of what happens at the cross because what happens at the cross is not that one being punishes another being because you've always got to come back to the fact that the Trinity is one God, undivided. And what that then means is that at the cross, the Father, Son and Spirit are working together to accomplish redemption and that God in the person of his Son is bearing the consequences of human sin, is bearing the wrath that we deserved, so that God himself is the one who bears our wrath. And so this isn't one being against another being. God, in the person of his Son, is bearing our condemnation. So then, let's look at the next one. And I promise the next ones will go quicker, so I'm not going to spend the same amount of time on each point. Expiation is another thing that Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. And this refers to the removal of sins so that we are cleansed before God. And the background to this, of course, is in the Old Testament, as with all of these images. Um, the work of the priests in the Old Testament prefigured what, what Jesus Christ did. And there were various sacrifices offered at various times and, and for various purposes. But on the Day of Atonement in particular, what uh, is sometimes referred to as Yom Kippur, the high priest would enter the place of worship, the tabernacle or the temple, with the blood of a, a goat. And he would take that blood and cleanse the place of worship so that it was no longer contaminated by the defilement of the people's sins and so that the people could have access through the priests into the presence of God. But there was another goat and the high priest would come and he would put his hands on the head of the goat and he would confess the sins of the people on that goat so that the goat symbolically bore the people's sins. And that goat, the scapegoat, would be taken into the wilderness, led away, and let go, and it would go into the wilderness, and it would die. And that was a symbolic way of showing that the people's sins were expiated, taken away for that year. But the problem was, of course, that this had to be repeated year after year, month after month, there was other sacrifices, day after day, there were other sacrifices. And so there was nothing that ever definitively dealt with the problem of sin. And so the writer to the Hebrews then makes very clear um, that what Jesus did on the cross provided a great contrast to all that had happened previously. And I know that John, he read this on Sunday morning, it was such a refreshing thought to think about what Lord Jesus did. And it says here in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, and he's talking about Jesus Christ, when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And this is why uh, Protestant Christians have been very careful to emphasize that what takes place on Sunday morning in, in the bread and the wine 
is not a re-sacrificing of Jesus Christ. It's not a sacrificing of Christ that we do. It's a remembrance of that one sacrifice for sins for all time, and it never needs to be repeated. And this then should have a wonderful effect on our relationship with God when we think about the fact that our sins have been expiated. They've been taken away. Because it means that we don't need to worry when we come to pray to God, when we come to ask God for something. We don't need to worry that our sins stand between us and God and that God won't hear us, that God won't love us because our sins are in the way. Because the thing about the expiatory work of Jesus Christ is that it takes away our guilt once and for all time and never needs to be repeated so that we are no longer guilty before God, but we are cleansed, we're put right with God, and we no longer need to fear God. And the third aspect of the work of Christ is that of redemption. And we've seen it already in Romans chapter 3, where where Paul says that we're justified by his grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And the idea here is a a different image. And these are all different ways of thinking about what Jesus did on the cross. And in this image, redemption is the idea that we are slaves. We are captives, and we need to be set free. And what needs to be done to set us free is is the payment of a ransom price and what jesus christ does is he pays the ransom price to set us free from our slavery to condemnation and death and this is a major motif in in jesus own explanation of his life to his disciples in mark chapter 10 and in other gospels the same saying is recorded where the lord jesus says the son of man that's himself did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many The ransom price that would set the slaves free is paid for by Jesus Christ through his life. And the background to this image, again, is the Old Testament. The the greatest work of redemption in the Old Testament was when God brought Israel out of Egypt. Uh, And you remember that the Israelites were slaves in the land of Egypt. And God was going to set them free through Moses coming along. and, And there was the the great signs and wonders that were performed, and then the people were brought through the Red Sea. And so in Exodus chapter 6, God says, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with my stretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. And so previously there were slaves, and now God's going to set them free and make them his own people. We're in a similar position to the Israelites in that we are slaves, not to uh, someone like Pharaoh, but we are slaves to sin. And sin in the Bible is very often personified. Uh, It's imagined as a person that rules over us, that dominates us. And of course, we know that the devil himself is the personification of evil as well. Uh, And and with sin over us, with the the devil um, over us, He ruins our lives and holds us captive to the condemnation that hangs over us. So that in effect he says to us, look, you've done all these wrong things. You're condemned. There's nothing you can do about it. You're under my control. 
you can't get free. And with that sense of, of condemnation, of slavery, then we realise that we need someone that's going to come along and set us free from the reign of sin and Satan. And of course the Lord Jesus does this. And when we think about Christ setting us free from slavery, we need to be careful too, because some of the early church fathers in the first few centuries of the church, some of them got the wrong idea here. And they said that when Jesus died on the cross, he paid a price to Satan to set us free. But of course, that's an idea that you don't find in the Bible, because Satan has no legitimate rights over us. It's not that he has us in his control rightfully. He's... He's a usurper. He doesn't deserve to have human beings. Nevertheless, he's grabbed them. And to say then that, that Jesus pays the price to Satan would be wrong. And we need to think then about what happens in the Old Testament and the Exodus. How does God redeem the people there? Well, it's not that God pays Pharaoh. That doesn't happen. But there is a price paid, and that's the, the Passover lamb. That's the price that gets paid for the people to get set free from Egypt. And so when the Lord Jesus dies on the cross as our Passover lamb, he pays the price and he pays the price to God because our debt was owed not to Satan. Our debt was owed to God. We had sinned against God. We owed God for what we had done wrong. And the Lord Jesus, he pays our debt and he sets us free from our condemnation so that we then know God as our loving Father. And this idea then of being ransomed, being redeemed, is again is a beautiful one because it means then that we belong to God. We've been bought by God. And so Paul, who writes in 1 Corinthians, that, that because we belong to God, because we've been bought with a price, therefore we are to glorify God with our bodies. With all that we are, we are to, to glorify God because he has bought us. We're not being redeemed corruptible things like silver and gold with the precious blood of Christ says Peter and so whereas once we were slaves facing certain death and condemnation now we belong to God and there's no debt of sin hanging over us but the last one then reconciliation is a beautiful thing that's been accomplished by Jesus Christ it deals with the problem of our estrangement and here pictures us not now as slaves but as enemies of God as people who were opposed to God and now we have been reconciled through the death of Christ. And one of the passages that beautifully describes this is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And Paul writes, all this, this blessing that we've, that we've entered into is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ <clears throat> and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that is that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. <clears throat> and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And again, what we see very clearly in these verses is that this work is God's work. God was in Christ 
reconciling the world to himself. So Christ is acting independently from God, independently of the Father. It's the work of the triune God. God in Christ is reconciling the world to himself. How is he doing that? Well, verse 21 tells us how God does it. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Not, of course, that Jesus Christ became a sinner on the cross, because he was perfect. He knew no sin, but that he became answerable. He became accountable for our sins on the cross and stood before God and said that he would pay the price. And so it is that as we are in him, as we are joined to Jesus Christ by faith, that we become the righteousness of God in him, as Paul says. We become right in God's sight through Jesus Christ. That then is the basis for reconciliation. Verse 19 explains, in Christ God was not counting people's sins against them, but counting them against Jesus Christ so that he would bear their punishment. And because then the weight of sin has been borne by Jesus Christ, God is no longer estranged from us. God is no longer against us. We are no longer cut off from God. And so God takes away the basis for his estrangement from us and says in essence that, that, look, I've taken away all the reason for me to be against you because I've not counted your sins against you. I've counted them against Jesus Christ. And so he, he beckons to people and says, come, be reconciled to me. And of course, that doesn't mean that everyone who dies goes to be with God or everyone is instantly reconciled with God because God has removed obstacles. But people are called upon to be reconciled to God. And this is a reconciliation and it fires up the Apostle Paul as he beckons to people and says, can't be reconciled to God. And then this is part of the amazing reality of what Jesus Christ has accomplished. We are no longer enemies, but we are reconciled to God through the death of Jesus Christ. So that we no longer have to worry that God is against us. So that we no longer have to imagine when something bad happens to us, for example, you know, God is against me here. It's not true, because we've been reconciled to God. So that in the words of Paul in Romans chapter 8, in that beautiful summary of the gospel, God is for us so that no matter what we go through in life that's true god is for us because we've been reconciled to god through the death of christ so when we ask the question what did jesus christ do the answer is a description of historical events but it's much more than that and the answer to that lies at the heart of the christian gospel because jesus christ came into the world to do the will of the father to rescue fallen sinners where it reaches its pinnacle at the cross, where he lays down his life as a sacrifice that provides propitiation, expiation, redemption, and reconciliation. He did much more than that. And he does much more than that. But as we think about these things, we're thinking about the, the pinnacle, the crux of what Jesus Christ did for us. And if we wanted to summarise that in a simple expression, we, we could use this expression that, uh, that's here in the slide, penal substitutionary atonement. And the reason why I put it there on the slide is because it's an idea that, that some people have attacked and criticised in recent years. But I think it's crucial to appreciating the gospel because what it means is that Christ's sufferings in the cross, cross were penal. That is, he bore the penalty for our sins. 
They were substitutionary, that he did it for us in our place to set us free. And that it's atonement, that it deals with the problem of our sin and takes our sin away so that we can be reconciled to God. And then this is what the Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. And as we think about what he accomplished for us, propitiation, expiation, redemption and reconciliation, it should thrill us. It should cause us great joy. Because here we see the depth of God's love for us. Because this wasn't just some abstract thing. This was because God loved each one of us. That he was willing to go to such lengths that on the cross, God the Son should bear our own guilt. And so I close with the words of a hymn by Charles Wesley, the English hymn writer. And I love these words. He says, O love divine, what have ye done? The immortal God has died for me. The Father's co-eternal Son bore all my sins upon the tree. The immortal God for me has died. My Lord, my love is crucified. Behold him, you that pass him by. The bleeding prince of life and peace. Come, sinners, see your maker die. And say, was ever grief like his? Come, feel with me his blood applied. My Lord, my love is crucified. Is crucified for me and you to bring us rebels back to God. Believe, believe the record true. You now are bought with Jesus' blood. Pardon for sin flows from his side. My Lord, my love is crucified. Then let us sit beneath his cross and gladly catch the healing stream. All things for him account but loss and give up all our hearts to him. Of nothing think or speak beside. My Lord, my love is crucified. So that's by and give thanks. Lord God, we thank you that in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't just trace an accident of history, but we trace your divine design, whereby your only well-beloved Son would bear our guilt upon the tree. And because he has done that, then it means that we approach you this evening, not worried that you've got something against us, not worried that you're going to hold our sins against us and kneel us to the mast for it. But you are for us in Jesus Christ. You have reconciled us to yourself through Jesus Christ being kneeled to the cross for us. And so we buy in thankfulness, Lord God, and give you thanks for all that the Lord Jesus Christ did for us there. And so as we continue throughout the rest of this week, give us love in our hearts for our Lord Jesus Christ as we ask it in his name. Amen.